0: I'm Glenn Gass, and welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers, and get to know the person behind the persona. And our guest today is Anthony DeCurtis. Anthony, thank you for being here.
1: Oh, absolutely. My pleasure.
0: It's a particular pleasure to have Anthony here back at IU, as he is an IU alum. He's got his doctorate in uh, American literature here, before going on to, uh, as most listeners will know to be uh, quite famous as one of the greatest uh, maybe the greatest rock writers of the uh, last of the pop era uh writing for Rolling Stone magazine as senior editor contributing editor editor of the record reviews New York Times <laughs> and Newsweek you name a publication or a tv show uh as i always say you can't watch a rock documentary without seeing Anthony. He seems to be, or when somebody dies or a big event happens, uh, the go-to guy. If you want to have somebody talk intelligently to a wide audience about why this person or why this event is important, you come to Anthony. So I'm so glad you've come to us. Oh, really? It really is my pleasure. Well, you've been a good friend to IU over the years. You've you've not been a stranger. Uh, Does it feel like you've kept sort of a sentimental second home here?
1: Absolutely. I mean I uh I grew up in Bloomington. You know, I really feel like I was a uh, New York hick, you know, before I came out here. You know, there was you know, I, my family was very working class uh at best. You know, neither of my parents went to high school. We didn't have very much money. I you know, we lived in Manhattan and I grew up in Greenwich Village, so I mean I was hardly impoverished culturally, but uh you know, it's not as if we were traveling the globe and I'd never been west of New Jersey when i came to indiana uh, to go to graduate school in 1974 you know those were really formative years for me and when i come back here you know it's it's very moving i have happily you know interesting things to do here uh when i when i come but you know just i always try to find some time to walk around the campus and walk around the places i lived and go on my own Uh, you know, kind of uh, internal and external journey. I have very deep and very fond memories of Bloomington and uh, and my friends here and the education that I got here. Let's uh, start
0: in Bloomington and work backwards and forwards. Uh, I'm curious, you you came here for graduate school. You had done undergrad in in New York. Yes, at Hunter College, yep. And you came here as a lit major from the start. I had a university and, fellowship, i probably proudly uh-huh. say. Good. And did you envision an academic future for yourself?
1: Did yeah, that's what I was here to do. I mean, I, I mean, that was the only thing I'd ever thought I would do. You know, I would be an English professor. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it was a, a, a great ambition. I was uh, very excited about it. I worked very hard at it. You know, but it was a terrible time in the job market. And so when I left here, I got a one-year job at Emory University, in Atlanta. And, you know, and then after that, I was applying for jobs. and I just really didn't get any decent job offers. And I liked Atlanta. So I decided to stay there. But, you know, that adjustment that was like, okay, now what am I going to do with my life? I mean, by that point, I was in my early 30s. And yeah, I wanted to try to make something happen. You know, happily, when I was in Bloomington, you know, I started writing for the Bloomington Herald Telephone, as it was called then. Uh, the daily newspaper here, now called the Herald Times. And, you know, I did weekly record reviews and overnight concert reviews, and that was my first taste of journalism. And it was exciting, you know, as opposed to, you know, the kind of academic time frame. And I'd publish some articles, you know, you'd send them to somebody, you know, like six months later they would read it, you know. <laughs> you know, Three months after that they'd let you know if they wanted to publish it. You know, two years after that it would appear, and it was just like, man, oh, man, this is glacial, Where's that journalism thing where, you know, the piece comes out overnight, everybody sees it. It was exciting and it was fun. So I you know, I had a good time here and I you know, you know, Bloomington's a good town. You know, I mean, I met Sun Ra <laughs> for example. You know, I mean I met Dexter Gordon. I mean, I'm not the biggest jazz fan, but like, man, that stuff I like. And, you know, to to be able to just walk backstage at the Bluebird and and say hello to those guys and write about their shows was sensational, not to mention, you know, Elvis Costello and B.B. B. King and other people who were playing around town and, you know, reviewing records by, you know, everybody who was making records in 1978. You know, punk was still happening and New Wave at the Herald Telephone, if I may say so, cared so little about what I was doing that I was able to do anything I was – you know, I, I was the great beneficiary of complete disinterest and, um, you know, was able to, you know, publish pieces I'm, I'm, I'm still excited by. I mean, I'm talking to Mike Leonard, who's the current rock critic one time. He goes, you know, I was going back to look through just to see what you did when you were here. How did you get away with that? <laughs> you know, and it was just nobody was looking. You know, nobody thought it could be of any possible. It was just how – you know, he's just doing stuff the kids like, so – yeah, you know, I took full advantage
0: of that. Yeah, I, I've made a career of flying under the radar of the powers that <laughs> well, be as well. It's so a great advantage it, to it. it. I mean, you know,
1: I mean, look, attention is nice, but you know, sometimes when you're not getting attention, you can do some pretty interesting things. That's right.
0: My guess would be that very few critics, uh, if you don't mind me using that word, I know you're more than that journalist, critic, scholar, no, but like, but like have a PhD. Term. And I'm wondering how –
1: I assume that helped. I assume, you know, the more you read, the better you write. Uh, It helped me. I mean it helped me as a thinker. I mean I sort of feel – I mean I jokingly say to my students now. I mean I teach in the writing program at, at the University of Pennsylvania. And I say to them, you know, I often feel like I'm still coasting on the ideas that I got in graduate school. You know i was I was reading all the time you know and and writing and learning from very smart people and you know that has been you know that and my undergraduate education at hunter was 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 very very good i mean you know back in the swinging days of you know the late sixties when I went to college and early seventies. Yeah, you know, I got exempted from more requirements. Again, this is something I was telling my students. I mean, in my whole life, I took one science class. You know, I, uh, I was, uh, you know, in my, I went to Catholic school, so you know, science was not a big priority there. And uh, you know, I took freshman year biology at, in my high school, and that was the end of that. You know, when I got to college. Um, you know i was just oh you know you're a smart kid you know take whatever you want and so i you know i just almost exclusively took um english and philosophy classes so you know i got a pretty solid grounding in the stuff that i was interested in and uh and you know bloomington i mean the iu english department was very good and it was a time when there was a lot of you know fraternization I mean it's a little bit discouraged now, and I you know completely understand why, but you know it was like you know undergraduate students and and graduate students and young faculty it was like we were all part of one crowd, and uh, my apartment where I was living became you know a kind of hot spot you know and I went to New York and I'd bring back you know the new Talking heads record or the new Elvis Costello record or the new Ramones record or patty Smith and you know we had a whole community of people you know, of of varying ages who were gripped by all that stuff. So all of that was great training Ooh. for writing. But, you know, journalism is a complicated field in a lot of ways. And uh, certainly at, at newspapers, having a Ph.D. was not seen as, like, a particularly cool thing. You know, there was a kind of macho quality that, uh, you know, like I was out covering fires and the the cop beat while you were, you know, reading Chaucer or whatever – I never had any patience with that. You know, I didn't care. I don't care about the copy. You know, I never wanted to do it. And if I had to do that to get into journalism, I probably would have done something else. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, I think that the, you know, the kind of training I got as a critic uh, at Bloomington and at Hunter, I mean, that's still the grounding of of what I think about and how I approach things, whether it's it's a movie or whether it's a book or whether, you know, it's a a record.
0: Are there writers not... Critics or rock writers, but just writers in general that have
1: somehow influenced your style of writing. Yeah, and and some of them were rock critics. You know, I mean, maybe they're the ones that make the most sense to talk about. Uh, yeah, I mean, someone like Robert Palmer at the New York Times. You know, just uh, I mean, who knew far more about music than I did, uh, but you know, it was always uh, you know someone with you know a, a very elegant. I mean, he wrote about the edge with a great degree of flair and 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 style you know that was always something i valued another rock critic at the new york times named john rockwell was somebody that had a really big influence on me uh john does have a phd and you know he brought that in a very conscious way to his writing and so he became a kind of model for me and, you know, I mean, I read a lot of fiction. I mean, that was a lot of what – I mean, my degree, my Ph.D. in American literature, in a, in a sense, is uh, – I mean, I didn't really take that many American literature classes here. But I ended up writing a dissertation. I mean, IU was cool in that, it, you know, you didn't really – you could – if you picked a subject in and in, in could con somebody into directing and, and overseeing your thesis, you know, it didn't matter if you really had done much work in that area. And so – when I was coming down to the point of writing my dissertation, I thought, like, what do I like to read? And that was contemporary fiction. And so a lot of fiction writers, I feel, have are are stylistically what I aspire to. You know, you know, someone like Don DeLillo, you know, Martin Amos, you know, are two that come to mind as I mean not that I oh, certainly am not as good as they are nor is my style particularly like theirs, but there's a kind of sentence-by-sentence standard that they set in their writing that I've tried to set in my writing so Mm -hmm. that no matter where you land in a piece, you're getting something of of high quality. I didn't want to have any letdowns in the style, and that's what those guys do Mm -hmm. in an amazing way.
0: Let me sort of reverse the question. How do you go through a PhD program and not end up sounding like someone that went through a PhD program. I mean, there is a sort of academic-speak, conference-speak, journal-article-speak with citations and parentheses and, you know, impressive long words. And, and, I you know, I've always admired your writing for being bristling with intelligence but also just immediately accessible to, you know, most readers. Um, yeah,
1: I, I just kind of like... I always think of that my ideal reader is kind of smart and curious. You know, that's... I mean, that is all... And I feel like I should do the rest of the work. I mean, I think certain types of journalistic writers even, but you know, certainly academics, I mean, I, I kind of feel like want to put the reader to work. And you know, when you start reading them, you feel like, okay, now I, I showed up for the job and now I've got to do it. Whereas I, I feel like you do the work as the writer and you make it seem easy. You make it as accessible as possible. And that is the question I ask myself all the time as a writer is like, is this as clear as I can make it? You know, not dumb and not, you know, uh, I don't – I mean, I hate that. But can I make this clearer to someone who's reading this? I don't want somebody to stumble. I don't want somebody to be confused. And so that became what I strived for, you know. And part of it comes out of the stuff I read as a kid. I mean, even though my father never went to high school or only went to two years of high school, you know, he read – you know three newspapers a day every day and they were always around the house and i always read them and i liked journalistic style you know i liked the kind of immediacy of it you know at the same time you know i mean i love big ideas and mm-hmm. i you know the academic writing at its best you know it's you know it's the rare context where you can really go for it you know and try to say something big and mm-hmm. and expect people to grapple with it and so i tried to distill the best of those two things you know i don't particularly i mean there's a kind of theoretical approach, particularly in literary criticism, that uh was becoming current just as I was finishing up my dissertation i'm glad I got out it's not i mean obviously very smart people do it, but you know it's nothing that interests me i don't I don't think about things that way I mean I like to keep my feet on the ground and uh I feel like you know speaking to any person. Uh, you know who cares and who's interested and you know is just reasonably intelligent i feel like you should be able to communicate your ideas to that person mm-hmm. i hate you know when writers say oh you know it's, it's really i mean their you know, their ideas are difficult but like that's your job <laughs> you know that's certainly if you're a critic that's your job you know yeah it's difficult but like your job is to communicate it your job is not to make it or or uh, make it more difficult or worse you know, just kind of coast in some way on the difficulty and and blame people's inability to comprehend you you know on their witlessness you know it's like you're supposed to make them smarter you're supposed to enhance their thinking and, and stimulate it so it's like do your job and that's the way I think about it mm-hmm. well to to go backwards from IU a bit
0: uh, your ed- education in New York must have been uh, a terrific foundation it seems like you were there at to- a Growing up in a, at an ideal time an ideal place. Yeah,
1: Hunter College. When I went there, part of the city university was free. It was free, you know. So I mean, I got you know, the, you know, Irving Howe taught at Hunter College. You know, Alfred Kazin came and was a visiting professor for a year. Robert Motherwell came and was a visiting professor for a year. You know, these people were all giving lectures. They were all around. You can go to their classes. You could sit in. You can, you know, take that course. Lillian Hellman was there for a semester. You know, and my regular teachers, um, you know, John Hollander, who was an IU PhD and a very famous poet. I mean, these people were serious business. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, when I think about Hunter, I always think that there's a passage in the bell jar where – you know, Sylvia Plath, who was, you know, like going to Wellesley or someplace, you know, was going to take a summer class at UMass and thought like, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of sail through this. But, you know, guess what? At UMass, like, they didn't just assume that because you were smart, you didn't really have to do a lot of work. And she was like, whoa. And that's what Hunter was like, you know. I mean, I teach at Penn and, you know, there's a, you know, there's a kind of sense that we're all in the club, you know, it's that kind of, you know, like, let's not sweat this too much, you know, and, and and i must say my students are very bright and they do good work but you know they i don't work them the way my teachers at hunter worked me yeah. <laughs> i went through the i went through the mill you know and uh, you know took a lot out of it
0: how about even going back further to your growing up in the village what was what what was the scene like for your childhood and teenage years? Well,
1: I happily, I grew up on Bleecker Street. My address was 347 (laughs) Bleecker Street. And, uh, you know, I remember uh, hearing a Peter, Paul, and Mary song. um, You know, they were doing the, uh, I think it's Elizabeth Cotton, the song Freight Train. You know, and they, I think Elizabeth Cotton's line is, you know, when I die, please bury me deep down on the end of Chestnut Street. Uh, except when Peter, Paul, and Mary sang it, you know, they sang, you know, When I Die, Please Bury Me Deep, down at the end of Bleecker Street. And I remember, you know, as a kid, hearing, like, my street in a song, you know, and thinking, like, well, where would that be? Like, where is the end of Bleecker Street? I mean, Bleecker Street's not that long, you know. Maybe is two miles, maybe even less than that. But where you were was part of the, the larger culture uh, was a, a thrill for me. On the other hand, you know, look, I'm Italian-American. My parents were born in this country, but their grandparents, uh, their parents came here from Italy. Greenwich Village was a very Italian. It was partly like growing up in everybody's kind of notion about what Greenwich Village would be. You know, there were hipsters and bohemians around all the time, and you saw them. You know, I went through the whole thing for, as a kid. I was born in 1951, so, I you mean, know, I saw the beats. I mean, I saw, you know, you would see someone like Andy Warhol walking down the street, you know, and... Various musicians. But on the other hand, I mean, from what I, you know, Catholic school, you know, the kind of Italian-American culture, which was, you know, pretty enclosed, uh, you know, it was a little bit like growing up, uh, you know, in kind of an obscure village outside Naples, you know, (laughs) uh, so that there was this mixture of a very conservative and contained and uh, suspicious uh, ethnic culture and this kind of wide open, wild uh, American culture, and you know, I, I I fell down on the ultimately went to the side of uh, you know the wild American culture. I mean, I hated anything European. You know, when when I got to Bloomington, and you know, my well thinking professors would say, you know, well, Anthony, like, why don't you speak Italian? You know, it's just never. You know, i you know, I want to speak English. I want rock and roll. I want you know, I want all this. You know, I want the new world. Yeah. You know, that's what it was like. I just, you know, Europe was like a museum to me. You know, I had yeah. no interest in it.
0: Well, and seeing Andy Warhol and folks like that walking down the street must have helped later to be not – for you to not be so in awe of fame. Uh, well, you kind of
1: knew, yeah, these people were real in a way, you know. And, you know, maybe it was, it was harder for other people, you know, who didn't have that kind of thing. You know, you, you – you know, you also learn that New York thing where, you you know, you're not supposed to gawk and you're not supposed to get, you know, even get excited, you know, but like you're, you know, you're supposed to be cool about it. Yeah, you know, I saw Frank Zappa walking on Bleecker Street, you know, I mean, very often as I was walking home from school, you know, in high school. Uh You know, I saw John Sebastian all the time in the street. You know, they were playing, you know. Bands would play in clubs, you know, three blocks away from me. You know, Jimi Hendrix at the Cafe a Gogo, which I saw. You know, a room about the size of this studio. You know, that was you know six or seven blocks from where I grew up. So that you know, the kind of immediacy and proximity that um, uh, that that afforded. Yeah, you know, did have an impact, and you know, I mean, th- and this, I mean, this is what I mean by a New York hick. I swear to you that this is true. But until I moved to to Bloomington when I was you know twenty three, um, I didn't know that there was a difference between national and local news because you know you you know when I was growing up, you turn on the local news and it'd be, you know, today the president went to the United Nations and did this. The, the national news would be today the president went to the United Nations, and did this. there was no distinction uh so that sense that you would be living in a place that wasn't that kind of central to the culture not only was it not the way i grew up thinking it just i thought every place is like that you know that's what that's what it is and that was another sort of hick aspect of my new york upbringing you know it wasn't like i condescended to every other place i just didn't think any other place was different from New York, you know. And so when I came out here, it was you know it was a big surprise. I mean, a lovely one, mm-hmm. but it, you know it took some getting used to. Yes, as a native Hoosier,
0: I'll, I'll take the Hick comment in stride. And uh, <laughs> but uh, so to to go from Atlanta and a, a year teaching gig to writing for Rolling Stone, it seems like you sort of did everything wrong. Like, yeah, you know, exactly. what they tell you not to do don't even try you tried you did and you succeeded could you
1: well I you know was looking for a job after my job at Emory ended I had a, you know, this one year visiting position and you know then, then I was figuring out trying to figure out what to do and I you know thought I mean I really liked doing journalism when I was in Bloomington and so I thought well let me try that and I wrote a letter to an editor at Rolling Stone I mean I'm an editor whose name I discovered. I mean, I saw his byline, but I called up the magazine to say um, who edits the performance page. I wanted to write a concert review and and just said, you know, I asked, you know, was that person in New York or was that person in Los Angeles and got their address and wrote him a letter about doing a review of the B-52s when they came back to Georgia after getting famous. And he called me. You know, my phone rang one afternoon. I was unemployed and home, and I picked it up. and It's, oh, "Hi, Anthony." You know, this is uh, you know, there's no phone ID or any of this other business. It's Just hello. And he says, "Hi, Anthony. This is Jim Henke at Rolling Stone." And I was like, "Whoa!" You know, I just said, oh, "Hey, man, what's up?" He goes, "Well, you know, I got your letter." He goes, "I have no idea who you are or even what your writing is like. I didn't send him any clips, by the way." He goes, but, you know, this is a good idea, so why don't you just go and review the show and send the piece in, and if it's good, we'll put it in the magazine. I was, like, beside myself, you know. It was incredible, and I thought – I mean, but it it, it was incredible, and it worked out, and the piece ran, and it looked great, and I was happy about it. But I also felt – Um, I thought, well, God, you know, this is pretty easy. You know, this writing for national magazines, you just write somebody a letter and uh, they say, sure, go do it. You know, it turned out, of course, not to be like that. But, you know, that was it was an example, again, of sort of naivete working to your advantage, not not knowing that it was never going to work. I tried it and it worked, you know, and, you know, it wasn't like I immediately got hired at Rolling Stone. But, I mean, I got a few more assignments and that. Was something that I could take to other places and um, you know and get work in other in other outlets and it would you know it made a big difference of course. I mean, students often ask,
0: "How do I do this? I want to write for Rolling Stone. I love rock, and it it seems well, you can make a paper airplane and throw it into the you know or bands. You know, how do I get signed by a label or how do I get noticed? And uh, you know, and, well, and and it's nice to have stories like this that where it can happen. It, well, you know, the fairy I mean, tales I, do come
1: true? You know, I think that um, you have to try every level, you know, I mean, just, there's no point in doing the naive thing if you know it's naive, (laughs) you know, Mm. I mean, it just, you know, you try to do the smart thing, you try to take the high percentage shot, but you also have to do something. I think if you, if you have a reason, I mean, I thought it was a good story. I knew Rolling Stone well enough to think that they should, they should do that review. And, uh, one of the reasons I didn't send clips is somehow I intuited that you know even if my clips are brilliant, uh, that if you know somebody saw them and just thought, yeah, well, that band is terrible, you know, he likes them, that it would be, you know, that that would be uh, disincline them, so to so to speak, you know, from from using me. Whereas I felt like if I wrote a good cover letter and very succinctly and clearly, you know, just made the case for what I wanted, and I thought it was a good idea, that what would happen would happen, you know, that, that what actually happened would happen, you know, and that's how it worked out, you know, and look, I used to call people, when people would send me clips at Rolling Stone, I don't know what they thought, but I, you know, I tried to make time to look through them all, and tried to write back to people, and, you know, occasionally call somebody up and gave them an assignment, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I would like to think it still goes on.
0: Mm-hmm. About what year was the... That first review from. It was 1980. And you were hired full time in '86, yeah. I believe. And, and there was Record Magazine in there somewhere. I yeah,
1: know. I went to. Uh, there was a magazine called Record Magazine, which was a music monthly that Rolling Stone used to publish. And that, I mean, that was a big breakthrough, too. You know, I mean, I got to do big stories for them for that time. You know, it wasn't as big a deal as Rolling Stone. Um, but, you know, it was on the newsstand and it was national and you could see it. And, you know, I did a big David Byrne cover story in 1983. I mean, talking heads were a big deal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I did a Go-Go's cover story, Hall & Notes. Golly, you know, I just was – I was out there doing it. You know, and so even though I wasn't making a lot of money, uh, it was exciting. I mean, I sort of felt – you know, that put me on the map. I mean, Record Magazine really uh, – you know, it put me on the map. And it kept me in because it was published out of the Rolling Stone offices, even though there was a kind of rivalry between the magazines. It you know it kept me in in the sights of you know the people who were at Rolling Stone you know mm-hmm. so that when record folded uh, you know after I got on staff there you know six weeks later I got
0: hired at Rolling Stone and when did you become the record uh, the reviews editor
1: I think that was like 1990 maybe mm-hmm. um, yeah there was a thing at Rolling Stone you know Rolling Stone was a, a very well edited magazine I mean it still is you know but it. You know I think it was especially so then there was a much there was a very thorough editorial process and um so there was a sense in which you know like kind of if you shut up for work every day and you were reliable, it was like you were expected to join the grown ups and become an editor you know like you know there was like the writers were the children you know missing the deadlines and not showing up and all this other business, whereas you know there was a kind of you know they kept offering me. You know, sort of editorial spots, and I was just I'm kind of having fun writing, you know. And then finally, it was just you know the record review job came over, and I sort of idly—I mean, I I did not regard this as a commitment, but I just said, yeah, gee, you know, the the record reviews editor job might be, you know, that might be a good one for me. And like literally, the guy was talking to, I got up and said, oh, okay, I'm going to go talk to Jan right now, and we'll (laughs) just suddenly I was the record reviews editor, and it was like, okay. You know, I, w- I could, you know, I could still write and, and did. And and I must say, the person who was the most encouraging of my writing was Jan Wenner. I mean, Ooh. Jan always would say to me, I always look for your byline. You know, I, when I see the, your byline in the magazine, I always read it. And, uh, you know, so it wasn't like, you know, I mean, there's always these paranoid theories about Rolling Stone. And so it certainly was not like I was forced to do this job I didn't want to do by Jan Wenner. I mean, quite the opposite. Yeah, i was perfectly happy to have me uh, write. But, you know, on the other hand, you know, if I wanted to edit the record review section, that was cool, too. We've been speaking with
0: journalist Anthony DeCurtis.
2: Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.
0: I've heard you say that uh, record reviewers don't have the the cloud of a New York Times critic that can kill a a, a musical or a, a theater show with a bad review. But is that really true? I mean I, I know I'm one of those guys who would open up Rolling Stone and see, ah, two stars, not going to get that. There's a lot of power in the, and you must get a lot of flack in return from, I don't know, bands, well, public.
1: they don't want to alienate you. I mean you wouldn't you – know, I mean sometimes. I mean people did occasionally – but for the most part, you know, they don't want to, you know, they don't want to make you angry. I mean, you really, I mean, I have to say, when I was on staff at Rolling Stone, I mean, there was a kind of, you know, you really could get away with a lot. You know, I mean, it was a kind of job where you can just really do what you wanted to do. You know, there weren't too many people. Like it wasn't like record companies took out a lot of advertising in the magazine. Like they they had no, you know, big impact on what you were up to. So. Um, they might want to, and you might anger them. And I certainly had. I mean, I remember. I forget who it was, but I remember a publicist at Epic Records telling me about some review that we did. And he just said, "Look, you know, you just stopped that project cold." You know, now I don't take a particular any particular delight in that. By the way, I mean, to me, it's fun when people like stuff. I guess you know, I and and. I didn't get into music so I could have cool opinions and condescend to people. I got into music because I thought it was just the greatest thing I'd ever encountered, you know. And it was just so much fun for me. And I I enjoy it.
0: And I get the sense you must have enjoyed writing glowing reviews more than scathing ones.
1: Well, for stuff that I liked, yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know, I hammered some things. But... Uh, Again, I just didn't look for that. I didn't think of that as an opportunity. I did, you know. I, sometimes I felt it was a responsibility, and and you know and sometimes it was just my honest opinion. Sure. But
0: were you hammered in that position as you must have been a target for every record label that
1: wanted their record in oh, Rolling yeah, sure. Stone? Well, like you know, You know, look. I would just say to people, look, man. There's only so many pages here. You know, I mean, you know, obviously with online, you know, that's all expanded. But you know, when it was print, you know, there's there was a simple you know, physical fact of how much you can get in the magazine. So, like, somebody would say to me, like, well, why didn't you review it? You know, why didn't you get it reviewed? You know, because there were, like, 20 other records like it. And, you know, I mean, there were certain things that you had to cover. You know, they were just the big records that everybody's going to want to see in Rolling Stone and get a sense of, you know, is it good? You know, what's it about? You know, what's... You know, and you had to do those. You know, that was... I mean, maybe 40% of the section, you know? All right. So then you got kind of like a level below that, you know, the kind of really cool and interesting kind of undeniable stuff that you sort of wanted to get behind. So it's another 30%. So finally, you've got like three or four reviews of, you know, this would be a good thing to put in front of people. There's a lot of stuff like that, Mm -hmm. you know? But, you know, if you wanted to be conscientious about it, you know, it required some thought. And... Yeah, you, know, you were going to miss some things and you had to, you know, um come to terms with that and mm-hmm. you know somebody getting mad. You know, look, people work hard on these records yeah. and you know they want them to get out there. It isn't just all business, you know. You know, the the pe- a lot of people who work in the record industry, I must say, um most of them actually cared about music. I mean that I, you know that at least that I encountered. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't fools. You know, you know, they had jobs to do, but you know, they they liked the stuff and, you know, if they were working it, you know, often they really believed in it. And, you know, it's hard to disappoint people.
0: Well, I know you're involved at least to some extent with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the selections process. And I, yeah, I'm I imagine there. you have a, a, a certain amount of pressure there too from labels that want their, their artists in the hall. And, and you mentioned record guys that like music, Ahmet Erdogan. Leaps yeah. to mind, Jan Winter, obviously, Clive Davis, who you're now working directly with on yeah. a, on an autobiography. Um, it's refreshing to hear that it's not all, you know, Gulf and Western and accountants well, and exactly. everything.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing, I mean, I am on the nominating committee. And uh, John Landau, who is the chair of the nominating committee, you know, and Bruce Springsteen's manager and uh, former Rolling Stone writer and editor – uh, You know, John, I think, said it best. I think he goes, look, if you look at who is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, you'll come up with maybe about a half dozen artists that, you know, you think should not be in there. The thing is, it's a different half dozen artists for every person who looks at it. I think, you know, the issues come like why aren't certain other artists in? And, you know, there's a desire to keep it – um you know to not have i mean we're voting in i think it's 5 artists this year you could put in 15 you could put in 20 i mean there's no we're making the rules but there's a desire to kind of keep it at a high standard i mean there's a lot going on i mean the hall of fame wants people to pay money to go in there to see stuff reflecting artists that they care about so you know their own concerns are not necessarily aesthetic but in the nominating Uh, committee um, they pretty much are Mm -hmm. you know i mean i i happen to believe by the way that commercial success should be a factor i mean it's popular music Mm -hmm. you know and its popularity i think is you know it's not a determinant factor you know but you know i think if you can make a case like hey you know they had a bunch of hit records people loved it i think that's good that should work in somebody's favor Mm -hmm. you know um but you know it, it isn't The exclusive argument. And the level of discussion in there, I have to say, is really high. I mean, look, it drives me crazy. And there are people on that committee that, you know, if I could take them and drop them out of the window, I would happily do it. But, you know, I'm sure some of those people feel the same way about me. And and we all get our say. We go around the table. Everybody gets to make their case. And then we vote. You you win some and you lose some. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel fine with, you know, with who is in there, except, you know, I've got my half dozen people too, probably.
0: Well, I've been dodging your role as one of the great interviewers uh, alive, partly because I feel so awkward interviewing you. No, not at all. (laughs) That must be a special talent and a very different kind of talent uh, than writing a record review or doing a profile uh, because you're dealing with someone else's life and ego and achievements and I, what's that balance where you need to direct it but also get out of the way? I know you've said listen is like the key word when you're doing yes. an interview.
1: and um, It's a balance that you learn through experience. You know, I say this to my students, you know, you can teach preparation. I mean, obviously, you know, I always make a point of, you know, referencing or either, you know, a specific thing or a kind of take that I have that I think would be interesting to kind of just you know, like fairly early on in the interview to just kind of demonstrate, you know, like, look, I'm taking this pretty seriously. You know, I've done my homework and I've really thought about it. And, you know, the fact is most people really appreciate that. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, I mean, certainly, look, I get interviewed a lot and I appreciate it. You know, I mean, if you know, there's, I had a great conversation one time, maybe venturing pretty far afield here, but like one of the first big interviews I did was with Robert Fripp, the guitarist who used to be in King Crimson and and Fripp, you know, was somebody who was I mean, it was a very interesting interview. It was about two hours long. Like the first forty minutes were incredible. You know, how many, 120? The next forty minutes were completely insane and unusable. And the next forty minutes were incredible. Like he just went off on some jag in the middle of it. But one of the things Fripp said was um he was doing a tour, like a kind of solo acoustic tour. And it was, you know, he was playing unique venues, you know, he was like playing in record stores and he was playing like little places and he had this idea of small mobile units, you know, it was against the sort of grandness and hugeness of of the record companies. And he goes, you know, he goes at par at that time in my career, I really felt almost that the ideas I had were more important to me than actually just sitting down and playing somewhere. You know, and so I told you know, my publicist or whoever was handling that stuff, like, look, whoever wants to talk to me, I'll do it. You know, the kid from the high school newspaper, college newspaper, you know, the local alternative paper, you know, the biggest paper in the city. Whoever wants to do it, you know, if we can fit it in, I'm, I'm, I'm there. That's what I want to do. And I just said, you know, well, how did that work out? And he just goes, it was an astonishing waste of time. <laughs> You know, there really was, and I, you know, I've probably been on the other side of it as well, but like, you know, I've taken time with people, you know, where, you know, they're just interviewing me about a project or or something and the piece comes out and you just go, well, God, you know, that was an hour wasted, you know. But on the other hand, if someone, you know, is talking to me and it seems like they've bothered to read some things I've written or, you know, they, you know, they're they're grounded in their knowledge, like. I will give more, you know, but but I could see, you know, like if you're in a, you know, look, I've had to wing interviews. I mean, look, it's a job, and like if something comes up and you know it's not necessarily your forte, but somebody has to do it. You know, you go there and you do the best you can, but you know, you could see somebody shut down. You know, make a, you know, you make a mistake, and you know, you could feel it. Yeah. yeah, you could just feel the energy go out of the room, you know. And it's like, okay, what's you know, <laughs> the center, You know, the seconds are ticking away here. Right. I've, I've read you say it's very hard to
0: salvage an interview an interview gone wrong. Yeah, once, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to wrong, turn but...
1: things around. You have to make a you know, the first impression is lasting. But on the other hand, I, you know, one of the other things that I, I think is really true is that about eighty five, I would say to ninety percent of interviewing is basic human virtues, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, regardless of what you think of the person if you're bothering to interview them you treat them with a certain amount of respect um you listen to them you do your homework and prepare and pay attention to you know what it is that's on their mind you know regardless of how many magazine covers someone's been on or you know however famous they might be you know it's still Wednesday afternoon they're still you know in a good mood or a bad mood you know they they you know you have to develop strategies I mean it's amazing there's a tendency I think to think of celebrities and you know as as kind of invulnerable you know whereas I'm really struck by the degree to which you know a lot of them sort of require like hand holding and Ooh. you know they're nervous you know and you know so you have certain kind of strategies, certain things work you know you withhold from mm-hmm. certain people, you know and you make you know certain people who are kind of a little needier. Other people, you you kind of jump in more and you you kind of put them at ease and you do a little bit of the work for them until, you know, they find their footing and then they're into it. But, you know, you you just – you treat people – you treat the person that's right in front of you as if they're a person and with as much respect as you can muster.
0: And I'm sure that's difficult at times. And I know you have an an amazing history with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and I want to – want to make sure we get to that sure uh i can't imagine sitting with george harrison and acting like he's just a guy and it's just tuesday because he's george harrison but i've heard some nightmare stories from you and i've heard the other thing that uh, from you that you have friends who are rock stars who or you become friends with them and well, that must be friendly. its own set of I mean, well friendly yeah. enough that it might make it even more awkward to interview them than Well that's the- true. That is true.
1: Yeah, I mean certainly there are, you know, artists that I mean look, REM was an example of this. I mean, I was around them in Georgia when they were really first starting out. We kind of came up together and you know, I'm still on very good terms with all those guys and I loved their music, you know. But there were times certainly when I was doing REM stories that I thought like if I was just a Rolling Stone writer who showed up that they didn't know, they'd be working harder. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so you get a certain kind of intimacy i you know i knew them when they had nothing you know they weren't always successful rock stars well i should add uh for
0: the listeners that if you want to get a, a good uh range or idea of the scope of anthony's interest, get your book rocking my life away full of terrific pieces and also uh in other words your book of interviews uh with extensively annotated interviews uh yeah. which are beautiful just beautiful to read and you just look through the list of names you sat with and let, i'll take my word for it it's everyone you would hope if you're a classic rock fan you, or or beyond that you, everyone you would hope to sit there with but this leads to of course the beatles and the rolling stones gosh what was it the year after you were hired at rolling stone you're you're interviewing paul and george
1: back-to-back days yeah. for a 20th
0: anniversary issue
1: that's yeah it was astonishing and um I mean, that was like a dream, particularly the interview with George Harrison, just because it was hard to find him. He hadn't really done an interview in Rolling Stone for a long time. I, you know, I did it at Friar Park, you know, where he lived. You know, it was really hard to stay focused as I was doing that interview, you know, just... You know, he picked me up at the train station. I mean, there was, you know, just these things that just could this possibly be happening, you know. And, and they, I mean, there were moments in that interview where I was just kind of looking at him and just getting into my own reveries about the Beatles and the kind of impact that they had on me. And literally saying to myself in my brain, like, you know, his lips have stopped moving. You've got to say something now. You know, just and then I, you know, I just thought, look, look, man, you you've got to really take the reins here. You have to figure out what you're doing. But it was tough. Any of those artists who made an impact on you when you were a kid, the, those are the tough ones. You know, even you know, look, REM or U two. I mean, who were whose music I loved. You know, I was a grown up by mm-hmm. the time that stuff came around. And so as much as I liked it, and as important as those people are, to me, they didn't make me who I am. Yeah. You know, The Rolling Stones did, the Beatles did, yeah. you know, and so to, to encounter them is really like encountering someone in a dream. I mean, that's the only way I can put it. it. They're in my DNA and in my thinking about all this stuff so much that to actually then be in their presence, it just seems eerie in a way. Like that's Mick Jagger. You know what's he doing here? Like that? How did this happen? You know, but you know, then you get to work.
0: Mm-hmm. It must be a rattling, nerve rattling experience, though, to, to try to treat them as if they're ordinary when well, they're not. They're well, they're extraordinary in your you, life. You right? have
1: to find a way. I mean, you know, and look, look, they appreciate. I think you know the impact that they've had, but you don't want to be. I mean, the way I always think about it, you don't want to be the guy on the elevator. Like, oh my God, you're yeah. Mick Jagger, you know? <laughs> because they get that all the time, and they just they they don't even hear it anymore, you know, and then suddenly there is a kind of thing of like, this is our right, you know, this is the writer here, you know, this yeah. is the person that, you know, they want you to have your own standing. And yeah, look, it's, you know, there's a great thing in uh, actually a very bad movie about Rolling Stone called Perfect. But, you know, the character in it, uh, you know, it was John Travolta was the main character playing a Rolling Stone reporter. But like when he was around the magazine, before I got there, just shortly before I got there, you know, he was asking various writers there, you know, how do you do an interview? What are your tips? And one of the guys, Chris Connolly, said to him, you know, you treat bands that aren't famous as if they were and you treat bands that are uh, that are famous as if they weren't. And right. that's I mean, you know, it's more complicated than that, but that's pretty good advice. Well, you know, when you're when you're talking with a young band like you, you make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, hey, like this is one of the heavy hitters here from Rolling Stone to talk to us. And with, with the famous ones, you know, you just try to have your own standing and make them come to you a little bit. And you
0: did that. We, in fact, we have a clip of your interview with George, um, where you got him to open up about some very sensitive personal things. Uh,
1: talking to George about the death of John Lennon, I mean, was really really powerful. And he responded, I think, in such a characteristic way, and it's it made a point that has really stayed with me, you know, beyond the fact of. You know George Harrison talking about John Lennon, but just in terms of people living their lives and you know being on some kind of spiritual journey.
3: What um, did you feel then that, that I mean, as, um, I mean among the other such horrible aspects of his being killed? I mean, did you feel that 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 sort of shut ended that process, whereby maybe you know over time you might have gotten closer again, or? Do you feel that things had gotten about as resolved as they were going to get? I
4: never really... um, I only ever felt physically unclose to him because we'd gone through too many things. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean... I took... You know, the very first time we had this LSD while John and I were together having dinner at the dentist's Right. (laughs) Uh When this guy put the it in our coffee. And uh, that experience together and a lot of other things that happened after that, both mm-hmm. on MSD and the meditation with Rin- Rishikesh and mm-hmm. stuff like that, that um, we saw beyond each other's physical bodies. Mm-hmm. You know, there was... Um, and I, I think that that is the that's there permanently, you mm-hmm. know, whether he's in a physical body or not. You know uh-huh. I mean, this is what is the goal anyway, is to realise the spiritual side. of And um, if you can't feel some uh, friend, the the spirit of some uh, friend who's been that close, then what chance have you got of feeling the spirit of Christ or Buddha or whoever else you may be? interested in. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, sure. And so uh you know, I always um you know, if your memory serves you well, we're gonna meet again. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like that. I, uh-huh. you know, I believe that. I think uh, it's the same old mob going round and round throughout you know, through from one body to the next
0: You had a similar discussion with Paul the day before. Not similar but
1: Well, I really try to um, ask the questions that I really want the answers to. You know, and if you're going to talk to George Harrison and Paul McCartney, I mean, you just have to ask them about John Lennon. And you know, look, it's been done, but you know, it's the same way that when you think about people in your own life who have died, you know, your feelings about them and your feelings about your feelings about them, you know, change as you grow older, and they deepen and they. Yeah, you know, they move in a variety of directions, and you know, I thought McCartney responded in a pretty full way. You know, allowing for yeah you know, the hurt that he felt about John, but also you know his admiration for the love, him, yeah, and love, oh, yeah. Yeah, Let, let's
0: let's hear a bit of that.
5: Someone said to me, "Oh, God, it's so strange, isn't it, when those things break up? Why? How can it be so sort of nasty? It's just like divorce. Mm-hmm. That people. It's are precisely sort of totally... for
3: that reason that it, exactly. it
5: gets." that you were so close and so in love mm-hmm. that if anyone decides to start talking dirty great you know then, then Pandora's box is opened and that's what happened with us You know, in the end it was like oh you want to know the truth about him right I'll tell you
3: mm-hmm.
5: anyway one good thing I'm glad I never kind of answered a lot of John's stuff mm-hmm. I just had the instinct at the time I thought no I can't handle a big public battle
3: mm-hmm.
5: in the media with John I think part of it was I knew he'd he'd do me in. <laughs> he was certainly the one with the rapier-like with Well, riposte, I mean, it's astonishing.
3: Kind of I mean, I went back recently for, for but something But I'm now awesome. glad
5: that I didn't.
3: You know, yeah. I now think, thank God that I didn't
5: do that because it would have, you know, really could have got Well, actually, at anonymous. one point in an
3: interview, actually, that you did, you, you said that you felt that, like, John was almost kind of going through a kind of exorcism of the Beatles mm-hmm. and Focusing just exclusively on the things that were just all wrong. It's so just yeah. like yeah. the mere mention of anyone's name. I mean, really. I mean, yeah. you, I think specifically, but so like even George, sure, yeah. you know, it's like he was a kid. He came up to me, and you know, he yeah. needed this and that, and you know, yeah. and you know, just like. Uh, and
5: also another thing, you, I think you're right. That's that's I think an exorcism in one way is what it was, a clearing of the decks. Mm-hmm. I think also, you move house, you move marriage. Yeah, you can't. Keep all these other people who are in this other marriage.
3: Mm-hmm. I think
5: John had to sort of clear the decks of us to give space to hi- him and Yoko's thing. Um, uh, so I think that's kind of way it was. But um, you know, unfortunately, it is like sort of it's like these marriage things. You know, just these two people who used to love each other, or these right. four people in our case who who kind of openly said. I mean, you see, we used to say, "I love." the other Beatles mm-hmm. and people said oh you mean you love them you know men admitting they loved each other was a little bit new at the time too so yeah you know really do so we were quite kind of open about it On I think when it sort of started to break up. but um, the other thing with John unfortunately at the time I mean you know which I kind of because obviously I go over this ground in my mind right. you know he was I, I was one of his biggest friends in his life Mm-hmm. One of the closest people to him, I can't claim to be the closest. Although it's, it's possible, it's contentious. But I wouldn't—I I don't need that credit. Yeah, I don't need to say I'm the guy you who's know, so. But I was certainly amongst three or four people who were closest to him in his life. I would have thought, and certainly spent the most time with him, longest, protracted you know, period of time. And obviously, like very hurtful all those. But to say. The only things I think now... W- look, I mean, the poor guy was on H mm-hmm. when he said most of that. Mm-hmm. And that's going to make you a little unreasonable. Mm-hmm. That's going to make you a little defensive. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy was strung out on heroin, you know. And, um... So, I mean, I try and piece it together. and I say, oh, come on. And it was actually it was really nice. I've, I've said this in interviews before. It was really nice. Um, after John died, that the Yoko... She was kind of quite kind to me in telling me that he did really love me, because mm-hmm. you know it had it had looked like he didn't, yeah. and certainly any time we ever talked, it certainly was no no go. Mm-hmm. But she told me that they used to sit and they'd listen to one of my records and mm-hmm. he'd say, you know, and they'd cry a little. And well, I there was there a very, very odd intimate
3: odd moments about the you know, one thing that was very odd about John in interviews. I think that if. If someone said, well, you know, I think the Beatles were great, he would just be on a tear. But if someone had ever said anything negative about them, yeah. he would say, we were the first to do this, mm-hmm. we were the first to do that, we were, you know, like... it was ah, a very He's a great sort of guy, John, he uh-huh. was so
5: cute, you know, he's a lovely man. Um, but, you know, he was just a man. Mm-hmm. And and this is it, you know, you this is this is what happens in life, these kind of things well, you're talking about. Defend it to the last, but then if he doesn't fancy it, he'll slag it off. Mm-hmm. He's, it's his right, it's his pro- it, a man's prerogative.
3: <laughs> well, now, do you feel, I mean, I, it must have been, oh, the impression that I got was that sort of around the time that, that he was killed, that the two of you were kind of getting on a on a more even ground. Yeah, we
5: got more friendly. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that was one of the, you know, our last phone call was, like, very good and very warm and very ordinary. Mm-hmm. So that was nice. I kind of cherished that because we'd had some steaming phone calls, you know, we hung up on yeah. each other about business and stuff, and <laughs> we'd called each other things. Mm-hmm. You know, it was quite, quite, quite childish, really. Mm-hmm. So thankfully, you know, I mean, the, the last time I did actually speak to him, it was very nice. It was very warm, and it was kind of more like it ought to have been. Only pity, obviously, is we never really got a chance to build on that and, right. and get back really again. But, um, you know,
0: that's life. Beautiful.
1: Must have been really moving to sit there and... and God, those moments were profound, I mean, for me. It's great, you know, it's great to hear that. Uh, and it's great, you know, when they came out in the magazine. And, again, they, I mean, I sort of feel like they're, they seem like documents of my emotional life, mm-hmm. you know, as much as, you know, anybody else out in the world might enjoy them. They, you know, to hear you know, those uh, conversations, you know, boy, oh, boy, it's like drifting around in my own self, uh, unconscious.
0: Well, I must say it's an honor to sit in the presence of someone who sat in the presence of people <laughs> I, I admire more than uh, more than anyone on earth. It's ironic that you were here to help celebrate the Beatles, a beetle anniversary, and that was wonderful, and you were preempted a bit because you had to interview the Rolling Stones the night before you left. Yes, indeed. And I know you've hung out with Keith, interviewed him several times, gone to Jamaica and hung out literally with Keith. I I, I tell you, Anthony, you know, I admire you as a scholar and a thinker and most of all as a fan. You don't take these experiences for granted, I don't think. Oh, hardly.
1: One of the nicest compliments I ever got was uh, somebody who uh, had a Stones fanzine, you know, and looked. I mean I love the Rolling Stones. I mean they were you know in in a way. I mean look, the Beatles were like the sun. I mean there was you know an undeniable the source of everything. You know, but on a day-to-day basis the Rolling Stones were my band, mm-hmm. you know. And this guy wanted to do an interview with me for this fanzine and you know he said you know what we like about you. Like he was speaking for the Rolling Stones community of the, of of like normal person civilian fans. He goes you know, what we like about you is that, you know, you write from the inside, but you don't write like an insider. And like that's it. You know, that he got it. You know, that's what I really try to do. That's the job, you know. So that's the way I approach it.
0: Well, you do it and you're the best and I'll always enjoy reading you and
1: Thanks, man. This is a blast, yeah. as always. Thanks
0: for taking the time and for being here, Anthony. Anthony DeCurtis. This is Glenn Gas for Profiles. Thank you all for listening.
2: The program you just heard was recorded in November of 2012. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving Central and Southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 855 1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Mia Partlow, producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.